Welcome back to the OPEX podcast where fitness is explained. I am your host, Robbie Burke, and I'm joined on today's show by Joel Jameson from 8weeksout.com. On this episode, Joel and I discuss recovery, HRV, and conditioning. Guys, this was an absolutely outstanding episode with Joel. It is jam-packed full of information. I know you're going to love it. Stay with us. Okay, Joel Jameson, thank you finally for making time for me, you bollocks. Took about fucking two, <laughs> took about six years, and I already took I about... Know, I know, I know. I would insult you in your, in your native tongue, but no one would understand it except for you. <laughs> <laughs> Just for the listeners, this fucker keeps calling me uh, a, a, tinker. A, a, a tinker and keeps saying I'm from, the, and I'm from the UK, but I keep calling him a Canadian, so it's all hey, good. Hey, which one's worse, t- tinker or pikey? <laughs> which which uh, one? I would say, see, I don't want you to say Tinker, so I'm going to say Pikey, even though Tinker is worse. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to play a, a double bluff Dude, there. I, I didn't know there was like whole sorts of like categories of Tinkers and Pikeys, like river Pikeys and like desert Pikeys, <laughs> like mountain Pikeys. There's all kinds of them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what, what is it? What, what's that movie again with Brad Pitt? Um, Snatch. Snatch, yeah. That's, your, that's one of your favorite movies, oh, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, yeah. Oh, you, li- you like Dags? You like Dags? <laughs> Oh, you mean dogs? I like dogs. See, I mean, the funny thing is, like, you go over there and it's like that, but worse. Yeah, yeah, I know, I know. Uh, that's funny, though, so it is. It was funny because last week he was calling me Tinker through emails and there was a few words back and forth. Uh, <laughs> but listen, no, seriously, man, it's, uh, it is great to finally uh, finally get you, finally sit down and have a chat. Um, yeah. Obviously, like um, myself and yourself, we, we've met on a number of occasions now and uh, over my coaching career, you were a massive influence to me, thanks to this yeah. book, this book right here, baby, that kicked it uh, all off. There it is. Right. So it started it off. That's what started it all. Yeah, exactly. And he, uh, you, you know this, honey, but you got to give Dave, Dave, Dave Tanny must have sold a lot of these for you because that's where it came oh. across. We were on strengthcoach.com. Tenney, I would say Dave Tenney, Mike Robertson, Bill Hartman, those guys really pimped it out for me. So. Yeah, yeah. Because it was. It was about 2009-10 on strengthcoach.com where like a lot of the big hitters, well, you want to say big oh, hitters, yeah. but a lot, of the, a lot of the big names were on it back then in terms of like who they are now. So like, yep. you know, Charity was on it every day. Brett Contreras was on it. You were on it for a while. Bill Hartman was on it. Like it was, oh, yeah. it was really, Dave was on it. And then that book got mentioned and like energy systems and it just like took off from there. So, oh, yeah, no, so, the first, was, so the funny thing was I wrote half that book and then I sold it and then I had to finish the second half. It was, that's a whole long story, but it worked out in the end. That's actually very similar to the story of John Berardi with his, one of his first manuals he done. He said that they, uh, they, they did like an online sale, but they had none of the printing done. And oh, yeah. he said that the credit card company held everyone's payment for like six months. So he said they had like, they had like well over a hundred thousand dollars, but they couldn't. And see, they were going to use that money to print all the books to send it out. Actually, I had, the, I had a credit card company pull that shit with me too. It's ridiculous. They can literally just decide to hold the money and just wait and then not give it to you for months on if they want to. People don't know that, but I, I had a hundred grand just sitting in the bank for six, eight weeks too. I mean, I, yeah. I just go print, but it's, it's. Yeah. Yeah. And you were, yeah, you were yeah. telling me, you were telling me that when we were over. Yeah. Like, it's my year. money. Like, yeah. yeah. Money. But you were it's saying people, money. yeah, people were emailing like, where's my book? And you were like, it's coming. It's coming. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Hey, so, I got it out. 
So anyway, what I'm trying to get across here in terms of your influence, not only on me, but on a lot of us, it's, it's been massive. And, and that book, Ultimate MMA Condition, really kicked it all off. But uh, just for the, the viewers and the listeners, there, there may be a few who, who might be too familiar with you are. Just uh, give us more of the background, Joel. Yeah, I don't know where to start. So I started actually in, in, in the strength side of things. I worked at the University of Washington for a bit with a guy named Bill Gillespie there. Strong, big, really, really strong guy. And, and really kind of just that was the career I was going to pick was strength and conditioning for football. And he went to Seahawks. I followed him there. And then basically my career completely went 180. I started working with combat athletes uh, early 2004 after I opened the gym. And basically, I realized I, did, I knew how to get guys strong. But I knew jack shit about conditioning. Mm. And all of a sudden, I was training these really high-level combat athletes. And I really just had to basically sink or swim, right? Like, I had to dive into conditioning and figure it out on the fly and, and figure out how to get these guys ready for a fight. Or I could just keep doing the same thing I've been doing. But I knew I had to actually progress as a coach. So anyway, I started training a bunch of combat athletes 2004 to about 2008. And the funny thing was, one night, I was just kind of sitting online. and I got in this forum called SureDog, which is a really well-known MMA forum, basically. And I, I go on this forum, and I yeah. read all these conditioning posts, and I make some posts about how most of the stuff they're talking about is wrong and how you need to take an individualized approach. And people just ripped me to shreds, you know, like, who the hell are you? What the fuck are you talking about? You don't know anything. And so I was like, screw this. So I start blasting back, right? And I just, you know, I usually don't waste my time arguing online, but I started arguing online, and it turned this massive thread and huge huge discussion about mma conditioning yeah and i was kind of like oh this is this is interesting like people are interested in this information and and there's so much bad information out there and so i thought well maybe i'll start a website and i can you know get my own forum going and i can actually start you know helping people get better shape for the combat sport so i started eight weeks out like literally cobbled together my own spare time in the middle of the night like didn't know what the hell i was doing but made the website and all of a sudden i had all these people on it so that's where I started Ultimate MMA Conditioning, and people, like I said, they, it, it just kind of caught fire, got on forums, it got all over social media, and it just kind of blew up. So I started that in 2009, and that's kind of where the whole online career came from, and then uh, developed some technology called BioForce in 2011, and just kind of grew from there. So I've done a lot of different things, a lot of different teams, organizations. I worked with Lifetime Fitness, who's like the second biggest gym chain in the U.S., uh, continued to develop technology, just rolled out a new technology platform. I've got a conditioning certification we've got over like 1500 coaches around the world that have gone through my conditioning course um and really just kind of continuing to build from there but it's been been a lot of turns you know i never would have guessed i'd be the conditioning guy my background was purely in strength and i you know conditioning was never my strong point so it's, it's one of those things where you either you either attack your weakness and you get better at it or you just yeah. keep hitting the same wall and never grow out of it so it's a common thing you see, though, that people who end up being an expert in a particular domain, it's because you, it's because they, they had some sort of issue in that area or a weakness. So I know, like, Eric Cressy's yeah. an expert with the shoulder because he had a serious shoulder issue himself and he rehabbed yeah, himself. True. That kind of opened up the door for him to, to get into that. And, yeah, similar to yourself, then, with condition. I've heard that story a lot, like, that, you know, you, you, you obviously um, – you interned or were mentored under Bill Gillespie. Bill's like bench for he was a powerlifter too, wasn't he? His bench records like unreal. Oh, he still is. I mean, Bill Bill's still benching. And he hit. Uh, I know he hit seven hundred. I don't think he ever hit eight hundred. But he's one. Of the, he's one. Of the, he's one of those guys that's a lifetime drug free lifter that actually is a lifetime drug free lifter. Is is he in a shirt in that or that, that's not? Oh right. yeah, he's in, a, he's in a shirt. I've seen him. I've seen him shirtless bang out four hundred five for twenty. He's is, he's is a strong strong bastard. Holy he used to do, he, he, like when I was working out, he was, he was about 330 pounds and, uh, you know, 150 kilos to you, wankers. And he, uh, I used to watch him do pull-ups 
with four plates around four or five plates 45 around his waist on top of his 300 plus pound frame like mm. the guy is a strong strong guy yeah. so yeah it was, it was a whole you know that was that was kind of where i was introduced in the field yeah yeah, yeah. and you you're a graduate of udob aren't you oh yeah 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 class 2001 uh okay so really want to get into morpheus and recovery and it's this concept of uh high performance recovery and you did a really good uh, interview with the guys, the, the Doc, Doc and Jock show, even though those guys have actually, they finished doing their podcast there a few months back. Um, but it was a really good interview. I'll link down the show notes. Then we get into HRV and what else against condition, because obviously they're the areas that you are well known for. But sure. with Morpheus, so your, your latest resource that you've brought out, uh, what is it? Uh, why did you feel there was a need for it? So the floor is yours with that. Yeah, so... Now, I mentioned Bioforce. That's uh, it, was, it was really one of the first HRV technologies that was accessible to everybody. So mm. going back to kind of start, I started using HRV back in 2001 or 2002, long time ago. I was introduced to it by a guy named Randy Huntington, who's a really, really good track coach. Yeah. So I was kind of one of the first coaches in the U.S. and one of the kind of the early guys really to use technology and training and use some data-driven personalized aspects. I wasn't just kind of training everybody how I felt like. I was looking at data. I was making decisions and making adjustments to their programming. So anyway, I realized how important this was and I saw all these different trends and things I've never been able to see. And the problem was the system I used was 30 grand. So the average person is not gonna shell out 30 grand to go buy an HRV system. So around 2010, 11, I realized like mobile phones are starting to advance. Like there's gotta be a way to take this technology and put it on mm. a mobile phone. And really that's where Bioforce was born. So I launched that in, in late 2011, early 2012. And we collected all those HRV points and data points and had lots of people all over the world using it. Uh, for people who don't know, HRV is essentially a measure of, of how your body is distributing energy, whether it's under stress, whether your body is recovering, whether it's not recovering. And it's also a very good general marker for health and wellness and work capacity and all these sorts of things. Um, so we basically launched that, like I said, several years ago and had thousands of people using it. But what we found was, you know, it was really valuable for people to see what their HRV was. Uh, but we weren't able to essentially connect their data to their workout as well as we had liked. They would, they would see these recovery patterns, they'd see their HRV, but they wouldn't necessarily know how to adjust their workouts. And they wouldn't necessarily know, okay, is this recovery low because of my training? Is it my sleep? Is it my diet? Like what's causing these things? Mm. So we put all the pieces together because all we were showing them was HRV. We weren't showing them any other data points really. We were kind of leaving it up to them to figure that all out. So I spent years you know, answering questions. Hey, why is my HRV doing this? Hey, why is my HRV doing that? Well, what should I do my workout today? Well, what should I do my workout because of this HRV? And so really I developed Morpheus to help solve that problem. I think, uh, you know, fitness trackers exploded, but the average person just looked at all these numbers and was like, well, what the hell do I do with my activity and my HRV and my you know steps, all this sort of stuff. They didn't know how to translate that into the gym. So that was a fundamentally big problem I wanted to solve. Morpheus does a lot more than Bioforce. It takes your sleep, it takes your activity, it takes your training, uh, it takes your subjective feelings, all these different things, your HRV, of course, and it translates that all into a recovery score rather than you having to interpret all the data. Secondly, it then takes that recovery score and it gives you heart rate zones of training for the day based on your recovery and based on what you're trying to achieve. So we give you basically a recovery zone. So if your recovery is low, it says, hey, if you go train in this heart rate zone for the day, your recovery score is going to improve. Your body is going to accelerate essentially its ability to recover because we're going to stimulate and push the body into that recovery zone. If your recovery is higher, you want to go out and nail some conditioning work, it gives you a target heart rate zone that you're going to need to be in to increase your conditioning. And then likewise, it gives you 
a red kind of high intensity or maximum intensity zone where, again, it's going to be higher intensity, but if you spend too much time in that zone, ultimately you're going to pay the price and your recovery is going to be slower. So it just takes all these different points, right? It looks at your big picture of your lifestyle, how well you're sleeping, yeah. how much stress you're under, how you're feeling, how you're eating, all these sorts of things. And it basically tells you what your body is doing in terms of recovery. And then it helps connect that into the actual gym. So if your recovery is low, you go in, you knock out a recovery workout, your boom, your recovery score goes up, you accelerate that, come back the next day and hit it harder. So I, I really want to just create something that connected all the pieces and then act as what I call a digital recovery coach. Like it's how I would train somebody if I was training them. If their recovery was low, I'm not going to go in and smash them into the ground because I know it's just going to slow the recovery down even more. Mm. If their recovery is high, I can go in and I can push them you know, close to the limit. I can get after it and get higher intensity in there because I know their body can handle that and still recover effectively. So you know, in a nutshell, Morpheus, I call the digital recovery coach. That's essentially exactly what it is. It's sitting there helping you guide your training, guide your recovery, guide your conditioning, and make sure that you are finding that right balance between training, stress, recovery, and, and the whole nine yards, really, to, to see continual improvements and progress and, uh, you know, all that sort of stuff, because that's what's, you know, so that's missing right now. So much data is out there, and people really aren't changing anything or getting any better results. They're just wasting their time collecting data, and that's what I really want more people to solve that problem. So, there's a bit of feedback there. So, just for the the kind of hardcore sports science nerds, yeah, they, they'll probably want me to ask this question. What's where are and you probably can't answer it, but what sort of systems do you use for the algorithms for all that? Like, how, how are you determining all the results for like sleep and nutrition and etc.? Well, so we, I mean, we're tracking. It's a long, obviously very complicated, but we're tracking essentially sleep in a number of ways. So if people have Fitbits, if people have Apple Watches, if people have other sleep trackers, we'll pull that information into Morpheus. It'll track activity the same way. It'll track it from your Fitbit. It'll track it from your phones, uh, just normal activity tracking that Android and, and Apple phones will do. Hmm. Uh, and then we're tracking the workout through your heart rate sensor. We're tracking HRV through the recovery band. And then we basically built the core part of the algorithm by analyzing all the BioForce data, right? So we had roughly mid, somewhere around a million and a half data points of HRV. And then we also had people's RPE. We had people's in manual input sleep. We had a lot of data to start with in BioForce okay. from years of use. So we essentially looked for patterns in that data and built some of the core recovery algorithms around that initial starting point. And then as we're now getting more and more data from Morpheus, we're starting to do more data analysis and we're starting to improve those things. So basically we have the biggest picture of someone's lifestyle and how it affects your training and recovery that you can imagine. We have kind of all the pieces of the lifestyle that really matter. And now we're gonna to start to be able to turn that data into better and better advice and more business and get smarter and smarter and ultimately start to give you more and more recommendations, right? Like, so right now, for example, he might say, hey, your heart rate zone for recovery today is on a 118 to 145. We can't necessarily tell you how many minutes to spend in that, but I can give you some suggestions. But once we start to get more data, we can start to say, hey, if you go, you know, in 118 to 145 for 28 minutes or 30 minutes, that's going to cause a positive effect on your HRV and your recovery. You might say, hey, if you get in your conditioning zone for, you know, 40 to 45 minutes for you today, that's what's going to lead towards that path of improved conditioning. So we can start to get narrower and narrower and narrower in our recommendations the more and more data we get. So that's what's cool about this project. It's really like the biggest real world, you know, research experiment. It's not in, it's not in controlled conditions, obviously, but life is never controlled. You want to actually have real world data. So yeah. The more data we get, the more people use Morpheus, the smarter you're going to get. And the more data we can crunch in and look at people's patterns and trends and, and help them essentially get more and more specific in our advice. 
So one question I have with um, technology like Morpheus there. So you, you're saying that it, it, it can tell us, it can tell us like when we're ready to hit it hard and then when we really should recover. But I, I know another question some people will want to ask you is what if I don't want to be recovered? What if I want to overreach a little bit? Like how, how do I know if, if I'm still functionally overreaching versus non-functionally overreaching utilizing technology like this? So you got to kind of back up and get into a big discussion for that answer. The, the question is, do you want to overreach or do you want to overtrain? What does that necessarily mean? Is that beneficial? Does that mean that we're pushing our bodies so hard over accumulation of days that it's now going to rebound and get higher? Is that what we're trying to do? Mm. Or is that fatigue just a byproduct of the amount of stress we actually have to use to continue to improve? I don't personally think that the goal is ever to, you know, put yourself in a state of fatigue so great that you decrease your performance for any significant amount of time. I actually think most people are better off allowing their body to recover because that's where you're actually improving, right? You're, you're actually seeing the improvements in your fitness while your body is in a parasympathetic recovery-driven state. Now, sometimes as your fitness improves, you have to train more and more and more and more, more and more stress in order to cause that stimulus to occur, right? But your goal is not to make yourself overtrained or overreached or fatigued. It's a byproduct of the amount of stress that it takes. So I would say there's times where, yes, you're going to push yourself past what is um, you know, a normal state of recovery, but if you have no gauge of that, you're essentially just kind of guessing. So I would say that, yes, there are times where you're naturally going to get into that state because it, it takes that much stimulus to cause the improvement, but the question is how far do you go and how long do you go there for in order to see the improvements that you're trying to shoot? I think most people go too far that other direction, to be honest with you. And what ultimately happens is that the, the receptors, the hormones, all these things start to burn out fairly quickly. And then you're not actually getting a stimulus that you think you are. You're just getting the fatigue without the actual stimulative effects. So, um, you know, if you look at a lot of studies, like the adrenal receptors start to burn out fairly quickly, actually. If you overload somebody for five, six, seven days, you know, a lot of the hormones that bind your adrenaline and noradrenaline will actually decrease relatively rapidly. That basically means that I'm not going to get the same train stimulus because I don't have the same receptors binding the same hormones that need to stimulate the body to improve. So you know, I think the long story short is, yes, there are times where you're going to naturally overreach as a process of putting enough stimulus on your body, but that's not the goal, right? The goal is not to overreach. The goal is to stimulate improvement. Sometimes that may push you in that state, but you still want to have a very close measure on it, right? I'm not saying Morpheus isn't telling you, hey, you have to always be 100% recovered. It's not. Okay. And in fact, we basically, what we found so far is that generally speaking, you want to stay above 80% most of the time in terms of what Morpheus gives you. It doesn't mean you always want to be 100%. It means most of the time you want to stay above 80% because that's going to be the right balance, again, between pushing yourself to, to improve and not allowing yourself to go too far down that path. So, um, you know, it's, it's about finding that tipping point, right? Where's too much? Where's not enough? And I think you always want to have a tool like Morpheus because otherwise you're literally guessing. Like, well, I think I feel tired, but I can push through it. I don't think I've seen enough progress, so I'm going to push harder, right? That's our natural instinct. If I'm not seeing the progress, well, I just got to train harder. That's what most people want to do. Well, maybe that's the answer, or maybe it's that you've already pushed hard enough. You just need to actually let your body respond to it. And the classic, the classic example is this. How many people go and deadlift and squat and do shit heavy lifting for a couple of weeks? They take like a week or two off vacation or whatever, and they come back and they're way stronger. Mm. That happens all the time, right? Is it the late effect? 
or is it they were just under recovering for quite a while and never allowed their body to fully get into that higher level of fitness? Uh, I think uh, as well, most people won't benefit from overreaching because they're so shit at recovering that they're, that they're already in a sort of nearly overreaching state, but, 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 but it's because they're coming at it from the other end, the opposite end, the recovery end, that they're, they're so poorly recovered that their body is almost overreaching. Whereas yeah, so, they, if, you get yeah, somebody, if you get someone who's, who actually has the recovery on point, they could benefit from functional overreaching. So I, I look at it a different way. I don't necessarily call it overreaching or overtraining as much as I call it under-recovering because that's what it comes down to, right? It's, it's not recovering well enough to adapt given how much stress you're putting on yourself. The biggest thing that I think people totally understand, misunderstand with that is they have this idea in their head that it's training equals results, right? It's not. It's training stimulates the body, and then everything else happens afterwards equals results. And where people totally miss the boat is how much sleep affects them, how much their daily activity affects them, how much their mental stress affects them, how much their activity levels affect them. So they have this idea that, the gym is the only thing that's affecting their fitness. It's total bullshit. Okay, I can tell you after looking at all these data points, your lifestyle has a much bigger impact on the results you will see from your gym because that's going to ultimately dictate recovery. I could train twice a week and be in a functionally overreach state if my lifestyle is not allowing me to recover from those two sessions a week. And that's what we found is that people inherently think that they're not training that much, but maybe the reality is they're just recovering is shit because they're sleeping six hours a night, they're stressed out from work and they're working 10, 12, 13 hour days, their nutrition is all over the map and they're binging on weekends and starving themselves during the week. And all those factors slow down the recovery so much that even two days a week of training could be more than they necessarily can benefit from and not actually get the results out of. So I think it's not necessarily overreaching or overtraining as much as it is under recovery, not giving their body the chance to see the benefits of the training because all this energy is being diverted into stress all the damn time. Yeah, it's uh, it's funny you say that, like, because uh, that that's usually how I've always interpreted over the last few years, and that majority of the time, majority of the time, it's never that somebody's overtrained; it's that they're just completely underrecovered. Now, that, 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 that that's not to that's not to state, and I want to get because there's been this like swing in the pendulum where people are going, oh, people who say overtrain doesn't exist have never trained hard because a lot of people come out and say that you can definitely overtrain like yes you can definitely overtrain but it's that's very very small my new population like elite level athletes like i get guys who are amateur like ga players over here like footballers and hurlers who like only train on a tuesday and a thursday and play a match the weekend that's usually it for most of them they might do a gym session yeah. there and like they would be like i think i'm overtrained and i'm like you exercise probably an accumulative total of four to six hours a week that's it out of 168 i don't think you're overtraining <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's because it's because as you under recover your body essentially reacts the same way as if you had done a shitload of training because it's the same net effect right it's putting the body under a lot of stress and a lot of energy going to deal with that stress and there's not enough energy left over to actually deal with recovery i call that a recovery debt that's basically what it is like you're constantly putting yourself under stress and all this energy is going to just keeping you alive, not making you bigger, stronger, faster, leaner, and all these things you're trying to do. There's only so much energy your body can produce. I think that's one of the biggest things people miss yeah. is your, your body is only able to produce a given amount of energy. If, if you're spending all the energy dealing with stress and not sleeping and you're not eating properly, your recovery goes to shit. So like you said, you can be training a couple days a week, three days a week. Maybe you don't go that hard, but for you, that is going to lead to an under-recovered state where you're never really going to get better. Maybe you don't break down and fall apart and feel like shit, 
but you hit a plateau and you never get better and you're always sitting there tired and never actually improving. So I think we should shift our, shift our discussion a little bit. Is it overtraining or is it under recovery? And the reality is most people are under recovery. They're not allowing their body to get into that recovery state. And the biggest thing you can see is why, what, do, what does everybody say that does drugs? What is, what is the first thing they talk about when they start taking drugs? Recovery. Recovery, exactly. When you accelerate recovery in the body and you are able to train more and then accelerate that recovery process, you blow up, right? Your performance goes to the roof. You feel like a million dollars, not because you necessarily trained massively better, but because your body was able to be in a much deeper state of recovery for much longer in the day. That's ultimately what shows us essentially the importance of recovery and driving results, not just the training. The recovery is where you actually see the benefit, and that's what people are missing. Got, gotta love me some drugs. <laughs> the recovery drugs. Um, so let's get into the, more of the mechanics then of Morpheus, because actually it's it's uh, I it's the one resource now that you have created that I actually haven't utilized yet. Because you know, as soon as uh, so I've done your conditioning courses it, yeah. online and in person. When HRV came out, I was on that straight away. I actually got one of the original ones where actually hold on, it's actually oh, you have just, the receiver. Yeah. Oh yeah, that's old school. Still have this bad boy right here. Oh yeah, look at that thing. That's an antique. That's a, it. Actually, it actually has a bit of fluff on it too. But yeah, uh, yeah you gotta keep that. It's been worth money in twenty years. People, like, what the hell is that thing? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like, Atari. So, it's like the first satellites that went out to space. You know what I mean? <laughs> Or, like exactly. the, or the very first, like, you know, iPhones is like, it's so funny. Who has that joke? Is it Bill Burr or, or, or Louis C.K.? Like, he's like, you know, it's basically a joke about how, like, how fucking, like, privileged humans are and how, how entitled we think we are. It's kind of like you look back, like, at an iPhone 4 and people goes, oh, what, what this piece of shit? It's like, give me an iPhone 9 or whatever's out now. But uh, so just tell me a little more about the mechanics of Morpheus. So if I go and invest in this like what do i get to do i get like an interface a login on a computer is this yeah so phone? so morpheus is basically a mobile app and then we have a recovery band so what we found with a lot of bioforce customers is people didn't necessarily like putting a chest strap on the morning and getting it wet and positioning it and taking their hrv with a chest strap you know it's accurate but a lot of people just didn't like dealing with it so we developed an optical sensor it goes in your forearm or goes in your calf that you can measure hrv with essentially much easier and, and more conveniently than you could with the old Biofor system. So you get basically the mobile app, it tracks, like I said, your activity, your sleep, your training, your HRV and, and how you feel and things like that. And then you get the recovery band that goes on your arm, takes your recovery measurements every morning, you get a recovery score. Now the recovery band can be used during training, but we typically recommend that, you know, if you're doing high intensity stuff, high velocity stuff, you want a good chest strap because at the end of the day, chest strap is always going to be more accurate. It's got less leg. It's better for a high speed workout. So, uh, we're working essentially on kind of a Morpheus chest strap version now. Um, but for, for right now, basically what you get is the recovery band, and then you get the Morpheus app to download. And then, like I said, the cool thing about Morpheus is if you already have a Fitbit, if you already have like an Apple Watch, if you already have other devices you're using to track your activity in your sleep, Morpheus is going to pull that in. So, you know, Morpheus does not – you don't wear Morpheus 24 hours a day. It's not something you just have to stick on yourself and charge all the time and deal with that. I didn't want to put something out there that you had to wear all the time because people – I don't like wearing stuff all the time. It's a headache to charge it, you know, all that sort of stuff. So you just do a two and a half minute recovery test in the morning. And then you can track your activity in your sleep. Like I said, either through your phone, through other devices you want to use. You can put the data in manually, all that sort of stuff. And then for the workout, heart rate monitor or, or the Morpheus band itself. So um, it, we try to make it as flexible as possible. So again, you're not forced to wear something 24 hours a day. If you have a Fitbit, you can use it. If you don't, you don't have to. 
Um, it's really just kind of up to the user how they actually want to put all the pieces together. So if, if someone gets Morpheus and they previously had Bioforce, they don't need Bioforce anymore then because it's all true. It's all true Morpheus. It's all through Morpheus. Yeah. We have, yeah. we have HRV through Morpheus, everything else is in there. So yeah, we looked at, I looked at importing the data, but the reality is the more we, the more I dug into HRV sensors and how the R intervals are calculated and detected, every sensor is a little bit different. And the optical sensor calculates R intervals a little bit differently than a chest strap. So, the problem was the data wasn't going to be standardized enough where you could look at BioWorks data, look at Morpheus data. There, it was too much discrepancy because they were different sensors. We developed slightly different algorithms. So unfortunately, there were people that were using BioForce C for years and we had to switch them over to Morpheus. And it's not they lose their BioWorks data, they don't lose it, but we weren't able to put it into Morpheus because it just wouldn't have worked. Hmm. So you have certification courses for conditioning and for HRV. Will you be bringing well, something out specifically for Morpheus? Yeah, so we're working on the Morpheus coaches platform right now. Uh, essentially, for trainers and coaches out there, you know, like I said, the biggest thing I've learned over the years is your impact on their fitness is a lot smaller than you think it is if all you're doing is a couple hours, three hours a week in the gym. Now, don't get me wrong, that's important, that's great, but it's the other 98% of somebody's life that's driving how well they're recovering, how you know, how well their health's improving, whether or not their body count's going to improve, whether or not their performance's going to improve. All those things are so driven by our lifestyles more than just an hour in a gym. But the reality is most trainers and coaches, you're like, I don't know, like, how'd you sleep? Oh, I slept fine. How do you know if they actually slept fine? How do you actually know what they ate? How do you actually know what kind of mental stress they're dealing with? You have no idea. You're just shooting in the dark and hoping that they're being honest with you and you're doing your best you can. But what we want to develop with the Morpheus platform is, hey, I can see how well you slept. I can see how much recovery or your HRV is. I can see how much your activity was yesterday. I can see that train session you did on your own and how much it affected you. I'm going to be able to see, you're able to see so much more information that your ability to coach is going to be significantly you know, improved. You're going to understand kind of what people's lifestyles actually look like. You're going to be able to coach them from a much more informed standpoint. Where it comes down to. You're not going to have to guess or listen to them tell you, oh, yeah, I ate great. I slept great. I feel good. Well, if your HRV is shit. And you were not drinking last night, didn't you? Right. So you're going to be able to, you know, essentially just get a lot more information to be more effective uh, coach and be able to make better, better strategic decisions based on how people are actually doing versus how well they tell you they're doing and how well you're guessing they're doing. So working on that probably out in the, uh, in the fall sometime. So we've, we've got a ton of people excited about that. That's where the next step is, is developing that coach platform for Morpheus. Sounds like it's going to be savage. Um, the, uh, it's it's I had this conversation with James Fitzgerald from OPEX too, like and, and how he kind of sees the evolution of a coach and you know, he often talks about like that medicine and like fitness are just gonna be like this, you know, in right. the in the coming years. And he actually like he, it's a bit like, you know, uh uh Harari from Sapiens where he's kinda like trying to predict the, the future a little bit. And James yeah. like th- James like talks about like he, he, he can envision like technology where like you know, it's it's almost it's almost here anyway. But you're gonna get up in the morning. But like technology is gonna get like so precise. It's gonna say like, you know, what exactly you need nutritionally right now, where your body's at, how, exactly how much training. Like it's gonna get so specific for everyone. It's basically like you know, fit, fitness is gonna be prescribed like medicine, and that's kind of like even how James would even word it. You know, he always talks about dose response in terms of exercise and you know the yep. prescription of exercise because exercise really is medicine. And it's one of the most powerful yeah, medicines we have. I mean, that's actually the best way to look at Morpheus, right? Morpheus is telling you what dose is appropriate for you based on where your body's at right now. The, mm-hmm. Now, one thing, one thing people always confuse is this. OK, 
understand this is something this is important people say oh well my recovery score isn't real high it's kind of low but then i went in the gym i felt great and i killed it okay they expect that because morpheus says hey your recovery isn't high they think that that instantly means that their performance is going to be shit and they should feel that in the gym that's not what morpheus is really telling you okay morpheus is essentially telling you a lot of energy right now it needs to go towards recovery to get your body fully recovered it doesn't mean you can't go push your body it means that if you continue to you're going to go down that rabbit hole where you're going to cross that threshold of the right balance it doesn't mean that today i'm going to go in the gym and not be able to lift because my recovery is low for one day it just means i'm already in that hole if i keep putting myself deeper and deeper in the hole it's going to catch up to me and it also means like hey you're not really going to get the full benefit of that workout because your body's not even in the capability of you know delivering the the recovery that you need to get out of the previous workouts or the previous lifestyle stress you put yourself under so i think people have this misconception of like oh i my, my recovery is not high but i killed in the gym so they don't get it but the reality is again it's it's not can you go as hard as you can it's should you go as hard as you can so that, again it's the dose response right it's making sure that you put in the right dose to get the response that you're actually looking for question i wanted to ask too there was you just it just came up in my mind and i know it's when you love getting it's about hate your vino because you just said there like morpheus isn't saying like you know if you're not fully recovered that you can't train so if you keep doing that you know it's gonna it's gonna have a diminished return and, and there's gonna be issues maybe in the future yep. and it's I mean, this thing hate your part of the future right i mean it could even be as soon as could it be as simple as this this workout even though you're gonna go in and feel like a workout isn't really going to make you better is what it comes down to doesn't mean you can't go in and smash the weights. It means that's maybe not what you're going to actually progress from. It means your body, you'd be better off letting your body recover before you went and did that because you don't need more stimulus when you haven't recovered from the previous stimulus. Yeah. So the, the question I was going to ask then was, can I train when my HRV is red? Because <laughs> that's yeah. the question you all you people always get. Well, when I'm red, what do I do? So like, uh, yeah. even just do address that though. Because I know, I still get people come back going, you know, I get athletes in the red and they say they feel fine. It's like, yeah, that can happen. That's not what the red means. Oh, yeah, exactly. Well, you know, it's funny. You are talking about Dave Tenney earlier. So, you know, Dave's a great guy, very, very good uh, what he does. And he was, he was telling me a story, you know, like he developed some really advanced modeling using HRV and using some different questionnaires and different tech GPS, all kinds of stuff. And he's with the Seattle Sounders, right? And basically what he was trying to do was calculate a probability of injury, right? Like, what are the odds that this person's gonna go out and get hurt today, right? So in his model, like a ridiculously high injury rate or ridiculously high the risk of injury might be like a 20 or 25%, all right? That's ridiculously high, right? When normal injury rate might be 1% or less than 1%. So he'd go to the head coach and he'd say, hey, like this guy, according to all the modeling, all the data, like he's at a you know, much, 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 much higher risk of injury than usual, 20% or 15% or whatever it is, you know, it's 200% higher than normal. The guy would go out, score two goals, have a great game, and the coach would go, your technology's shit, right? Like, it doesn't mean just because you're at increased risk that you're necessarily going to go out and blow your hamstring off your bone. Just like, hey, just because you're in the red doesn't mean you can't train, you're going to fall apart if you try. It just means that's not necessarily the correct dose to get the response that you're looking for. So, again, we're talking about probabilities. We're talking about where you're at versus where you want to be. It doesn't necessarily mean, hey, I'm red. It doesn't mean you're, you're going to blow up to go lift a heavy weight. This means you might not benefit from that. And if you keep doing that over time, again, you're, you're not going to see what you're looking for. Ultimately, you will blow up. But it's not going to be that day. It might be next week or next month or even, you know, next year. A lot of stuff like Stu McGill talks about that. Like, there's an injury threshold, right? Like, you might not hit it one day, but it might lower your threshold so that two days or two weeks or two months later, 
you bend over to pick something up and boom, now you actually are injured, right? So it's it, people have this idea that like, oh, it's red, so I can't go to the gym, or I feel great even though it's red, so it's wrong. It's just there's there's more to it than that. So I know another question that we're probably going to get is, is this technology really more so for high performance athletes or would you integrate this with the general population? I, I know your answer for this because you, yeah, yeah. you even mentioned it just briefly at the start of this interview where you said that HRV is one of the best markers for overall health. And uh, I actually did a mitochondrial medicine course with a Russian doctor called Dr. Michael Kucher. I've taken two or three courses with him and that's what he uses as an indirect measure of mitochondrial function oh, yeah. is a, is a HRV, is a HRV system. So he gets a, you yep. know, obviously a window into the autonomic nervous system, which then gives him some indirect measure of how someone's making center energy down at the, at the center level with the mitochondria. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's, there's a lot of things that go into someone's HRV score and their HRV, you know, overall. But one of the biggest factors they know is mitochondrial function. There's a very direct correlation between VO2 max and HRV Y because VR2 max is so driven by mitochondrial function. So people's in general, their HRV is gonna be higher, that's gonna prevent against cardiovascular disease, against stroke, against diabetes, against all that stuff. Largely also because as mitochondrial function increases, parasympathetic nervous system increases, and you talk, I talked about this course, it's inherently anti-inflammatory. It's, it's mitigating and protecting people against the stress of daily life because stress is inherently sympathetic, that's inherently inflammatory, parasympathetic nervous system is inherently anti-inflammatory. So what you find is that people with higher HRV, they can deal with the stress of life and not pay the consequences the same as somebody whose HRV is much lower. So you know, whether you're talking about somebody who's just trying to live longer and play with their kids or someone who's trying to perform at the highest levels, like your ability to tolerate stress is the key to being able to do that, especially over the long term. You know, the athlete with higher HRV is going to have a longer, more successful career without breaking down just like the, you know, the stay-at-home mom or the executive or whoever is going to have a longer, healthier life if they can deal with the stress of life more effectively. And that's what HIV essentially measures. One very interesting thing I actually learned from Dr. Conchera, Dr. Conchera was, so, and I'd like to get your thoughts on this, and I know you're fully aware of this because I think we've previously discussed about this ourselves. Yeah. Every everyone thinks like you know sympathetics the big bad guy and parasympathetics you know the really really good guy but he he was telling me that particularly with general population people because he was like with with well trained athletes he's like when you when you measure them at rest they should have high sympath or they should have high parasympathetic tone at rest if they're elite yeah. and well trained and recovered but he's like if you get a general population person and they don't do a lot of training and he's like their parasympathetic is very very high he's like that's not good because what that what that is actually telling me is from a sympathetic or HBA axis standpoint, they are so fucked. Oh, they're so shut down. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, basically it's like this chronic low grade inflammation where the HRV is trying to just overcome all this inflammation and it never can. Right. Mm. You're just in this chronically low grade state of inflammation where your body's, you know, the ability to turn that off is, is not there. And you're essentially, you're screwed in the long run. I mean, ultimately over time, you're going to fall apart. So, so the, the the question I was having for Dr. Charles Simon was like, well, how do we know then if it if the athlete actually is just in a parasympathetic state because they are well recovered and they're in a good place, or they actually are in a parasympath parasympathetically overtrained state? And he was I mean, he was telling us that there, there were certain algorithms with his system that you have to look at. Well, go ahead. Well, he, I mean, he, the short answer is if somebody's in a truly deep parasympathetic state, they can't push themselves, they can't get the sympathetic hormones to drive their efforts you will see it in the gym. Like if somebody who's in a truly parasympathetic dominant state, they can't get their heart rate up, they don't have the motivation, 
their strength and their reaction is going to be shit. I mean, somebody who's really in that deep of a state where that's happening, they there will be noticeable effects in the gym. And and same thing for the average population person. Like if they're in that state, they're not going to have energy. They're going to feel tired all the time. They're going to be depressed. Not going to have motivation. They're going to be craving a bunch of foods. Like if you're if you're that far out, like you will see real world effects of it. If you don't have those effects, then you don't have it. I mean, it's it's something where you're going to see noticeable symptoms if you're if you're in that state that's the other thing too and that like i would say you you will notice it like it, it, it is very noticeable so one some of the big sort of indicators that come with that are like really low heart rate another one too is people stand up and they get really lightheaded really quick because oh, yeah. apparently yeah. Be, because the the baroreceptors in the vessels because yeah. your because your sympathetic system is so fatigued it can't contract yeah. them quick enough and you can't get yeah, the blood you in your brain. don't get the blood you don't get the blood distribution the blood pressure you need to actually you know adjust positions quickly but like i said you'll see that i mean there's that's not something you have to guess at like Hey, you feel like shit? Yep. Okay, well, that's the sign, right? I know that in this book, um, I can't, what's the actual word he uses on it? But he talks about, so this is Thomas, uh, Thomas Kurtz, but this is a very, very good oh, book. Yeah, I've, got, I've got that book. Thomas Bortrain. But he talks about the two different types of um, overtraining, and he, you know, he just, there's, there's, there's the actual words that distinguish them. Like, so, yeah, like, it's something, it's something based out and. Yeah, uh, that's the one based out. Like, so one is about syntax or something. Oh, here it is here, actually. Yeah, so there's two types of overtraining, Bayes-Doic, and that's the symptoms of Bayes-Doic's disease. That's, that's parasympathetic. The other one's like as, abs, as something. Yeah, I know that the Bayes-Doic one is parasympathetic and the other one then is sympathetic, but yeah, it's here anyway. I, I see it more, I mean, I think it's like I've talked about this before, I think it's more of a progression than it is like a one or the other. Like you're always going to go through one to get to the other. And generally speaking, you're going to start with a more parasympathetic because your because your receptors are going to start to decrease and you overload the body with stress hormones, eventually you're going to keep going to where those hormones are shut down, and that's where you're more in that in that parasympathetic. Mm. So what I want to get into now is high performance recovery training and how that model can can start to be integrated into uh, certain gym setups. Because you you gave a very good discussion on this again on the uh, the Doc and Jock show or Jock and Doc no Doc Doc and Jock show. Um, yeah. And they actually, one of the guys there actually said that they knew a guy on a CrossFit gym where he put in two recovery days. Like he did not allow anyone to do any high intensity work. He was like, these are like recovery yeah. days, it, kind of like Charlie Francis high low model. So he basically had low yeah. days because uh, he, this guy really started to re- realize, appreciate the need for recovery. And I liked what you said in that interview where you were like, you're like, I've decided to call it high performance recovery training because it's nearly like you're playing a trick on people. Ooh, training, high performance. Well, I, actually, we've called, hey, I, sorry, I, I'm actually updating the phraseology. It's still high performance recovery training, but I found something that, that resonates with people make even more sense, and that's rebound training. Because essentially, that's what you're helping your body doing, right? You're helping your body rebound back to where you can get into the higher intensity. So it is HPRT, but I like rebound training because people are like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Like, it's an easier. Thing for your general population client to grasp was called rebound training yeah but it kind of sounds like you're exercising on a rebounder for like your lymphatic system though. <laughs> not quite that neat. i don't i don't know what you guys do in the uk but no we don't do that over here um so yeah t- tell us like for for the viewers and listeners give us an example of what a um 
a high recovery performance training session might look like and then maybe also tell us on a, on a more micro and even meso or macro scale like yeah. what what that would look like you know so maybe, maybe even give us like a weekly sort of macro setup like of how that might look like in someone's program you know yeah. whether it's a general person or an athlete so you can take it ahead there yeah so essentially this concept of reboundary or high performance recovery whatever you want to call it the idea was how can we use form of training to stimulate the body to recover faster because traditionally we just think of a training as i'm gonna go in i'm gonna do my intervals my my weight lifting whatever i'm gonna do and i'm gonna stimulate fitness well what if we can use it to actually stimulate recovery and put the body into that more parasympathetic state where it can recover better so the idea was okay let's look at how we do that right well number one it's got to be a fairly short workout because if we start going too many calories and too much volume that's going to be a significant stress for the body so Typically, I like the sessions to be like 30, maybe 40 minutes at tops. Okay, number two, how can we start to stimulate that parasympathetic nervous system? Well, a lot of the stuff where you're working your breathing and your overall postures and your parasympathetic-driven uh, you know, movements that Mike Robertson and Bill Hartman, all the PRA guys talk about, all that stuff helps drive airflow, helps drive parasympathetic function. So usually we start a rebound or HPRT session with some parasympathetic type breathing where we're trying to go full inhalation, full exhalation. We're trying to essentially move airflow effectively throughout the body and get that parasympathetic system firing because it's ultimately tied to the respiratory cycle. Um, second, we typically go into some kind of dynamic mobility warm up. Same thing, we're just trying to drive light blood flow through the joints because blood flow is part of recovery, right? Driving blood, driving oxygen, driving all these nutrients into the blood flow throughout or into the different muscles and joints throughout the body is part of recovery, right? So we start just doing some breathing exercises, we start doing some mobility exercises, and then typically we'll go into a recovery, uh, we call it like recovery cardio, right? So recovery zone intervals, we use Morpheus, you go up to the top of your recovery zone and back down, up to your recovery zone and back down. Basically what we're trying to do is get you to turn on the sympathetic system and then shut it back down. Turn on the sympathetic system and then bring it back down. We're trying to get develop that skill to shut off the stress response because that's a skill that's what people don't realize the ability to go hard and then bring it down quickly is a skill and that skill is a very important part of recovery so basically do some intervals i call them recovery zone intervals where again our goal is to be able to drive a heart rate up gradually and then to bring it back down you drive it back up and bring it back down and you'll find basically the more you start to do these sorts of things the faster you can bring your heart rate down that's a sign that you can shut off that sympathetic nervous system and get yourself into that recovery uh, level quicker, right? Then we typically go into some sort of CNS stimulation. So like it could be a deadlift. I like, I like, to, I try to avoid stuff that's got a lot of eccentric loads, so like a drop deadlift, uh, an Olympic lift, you know, maybe a box jump, a medicine ball throw, you know, something where there's some concentric component to get some of those higher threshold muscle fibers and get blood flow through them, stimulate the nervous system. But again, try not to break it down. So we try to use, again, stuff with less eccentric loading on it. Um, and then you can do a couple accessory exercises, you know, maybe a weak point type thing. And then we'll typically go into, again, some, some more recovery breathing, some foam rolling, stretching, mobility, all that kind of stuff. But the biggest thing is you should walk out of that session feeling better than when you went into it. That's the biggest difference. You know, a lot of times you go in the gym, you do a hard workout. You're like, oh, man, I'm tired. I, I, I need to go rest or I need to go you know, eat or whatever. I just feel exhausted. You should actually feel more energized. You should feel more um you know, getting more recovered or you should feel better after the recovery sessions than you did before. And that's the biggest differentiator. Um, as far as how to use them, typically we've been telling people twice a week is where we've seen people see the most benefit of them. I, I like to use them. I've been playing around with this, this, this microcycle basically where you go, 
a stimulation day, which is a fairly hard day, but at a pretty marked volume. Then you go max intensity, what I call development day. Then you go a rebound day. Then you take a day off, and then you repeat that. And essentially, it's this, this little wave cycle where we're pushing the body a little bit, we're pushing the body a lot, and then we're shifting our body into recovery state, and then we're taking a day off, and then we're repeating that. And we're seeing great results with that, where it's just this pattern of get the body fired, get the body really stressed and push it, and then help it recover, take a day off, and repeat that. So, you know, again, there's, there's lots of ways to do it. It depends on what your overall microcycle is. If you have practice or games, it's really good to use after, you know, after practice or after game, get to speed up recovery. You can use it lots of ways, but I've been basically playing around with for your average general population client, two days of high intensity and two days of rebound training. That pattern works extremely well for your average person on the street who just wants to look and feel their best. Two days a week is about of high intensity is about what they're going to be able to handle for the most part. And then two days of rebound training or recovery training is going to help them again, continue to see those benefits. So, yeah, there's lots of ways you can do it, right? But just having that general idea of I'm not going to have a super long workout. I'm going to use some form of breathing to help drive oxygen and drive parasympathetic function through my breathing capacity. I'm going to have some mobility drills to drive blood flow into different tissues. I'm going to have something to stimulate the nervous system. And then I'm basically going to allow myself to walk out of the gym after 30 to 35, 40 minutes and, and feel way better than I went in. That's what people that I've been doing it or say like, wow, I feel way better when I leave the gym. It's just, it's like a novel concept, right? Cause we're so used to this idea that if, if we didn't kill ourselves, we didn't do anything productive. And you know, again, what we're, what we're seeing early, at least in the data is two sessions a week of recovery training in general, we're seeing higher rebounding HRVs than people who don't do it. And the more data we get, the more we'll be able to confirm that. But I generally think a couple times a week for that, it's about right for most people. With these recovery sessions, like it sounds like you can get creative with them too in terms of their yeah. content. Would, would you recommend like, you know, doing something, would you recommend switching up the content every day or do you like, is it like kind of regular training that I kind of have a, a, um, the mesocycle say for the month, I kind of have what's going to be plugged in on those. No, I mean, I, honestly, I think that the exercises matter a lot less in this case because all we're trying to do is drive blood flow throughout the body and stimulate the nervous system. Exactly how you choose to do that. If you want to go do it through kettlebell exercises, great. If you want to do a bunch of medicine ball exercises, great. If you want to jump on the bike and the rower and a versa climber, do whatever you want to do. I think the exercises in this case are less important. I actually think variety for this point is better because we're trying to stimulate all these different movements, all these different movement patterns, we're trying to get blood flow throughout the entire body. There's, there's no reason in this case you can't in, introduce quite a bit of variety because you're not trying to stimulate improvement per se in a given exercise. You're not trying to drive a strength improvement. You're just trying to drive blood flow and stimulate the nervous system. So exercise selection, really, you can you can play with it however you want. And that's why I think it's kind of why people like it, too, is it, it does feel like it doesn't have to be monotonous. It can be one thing one day. You can do totally different exercises the other day. As long as you're finding that right amount of stress to stimulate, right, it's hermesis. It's a little bit is going to be beneficial. Too much is going to have a negative effect. So as long as you're keeping it shorter, 30, 35, 40 minutes, as long as you're trying to avoid a ton of eccentric load, you're not going to max, you know, max effort. You're not dragging your heart rate past your aerobic threshold. As long as you kind of follow those basic guidelines, how you put a piece together, the order, the exercises are, are really not that important. They're more, uh, you know, secondary to the main just principles that I just talked about. This is, this is where things like sled work or heavy, heavy, oh, yeah. heavy bike, heavy resistance yep. bike rides would be very good. Yep. It's funny because uh, it's um. It, it's like even before like uh the concept of this like high performance recovery training or, or rebound sessions can, have been sort of 
as um, have been put forth by yourself. I, I've been kind of doing these types of sessions for the last number of years, and it's just so funny what you're you're talking about there in terms of like the content. Because uh, one recovery session that I always it's one I always only default to. I usually do it once a week, but the content is always this, it usually goes some type of concentric explosive exercise. Then it's basically hip dominant, lower body, upper body. Uh, sorry, a knee dominant a push, a hip dominant, a pull, core exercise. And then I do two of that. And then I have another circuit, same setup with two of that. So it's like four total rounds. That's 40 minutes. And the one thing I, the one thing I always, I always feel really much better after, but the one thing I always cut, maybe because Ireland's a colder country, but it's similar to, to the weather in Seattle. So maybe you can relate to this is that like, I always feel really warm after the sessions. Like it's in like yep. it's like it's like everything was stimulated like right down to my fingertips and my and my gum. Yeah, it's blood flow. It's purely about it's, blood flow, right? Yeah, yeah. Driving blood flow and driving oxygen and driving nutrients and driving hormones throughout the body is inherently going to drive recovery as long as you again you don't go two hours and then you go 30, 40 minutes. How exactly you do it is not as important as just that main principle of driving blood flow. Like you said, you feel warm, you feel better, you feel looser, your joints feel good. And you walk out of the gym and like you should feel a recovery effect after you're done with it. And, you know, you, you do it obviously for a while and you do it for a reason because you've seen a benefit, I'm assuming, right? But because uh, when I used to teach you at a personal training college, I used to, we used to put students through some of the, the you know, the, the training templates. So like uh, we had work capacity, we had a body comp, we had hypertrophy, the strength, we had explosive strength. Um, so we used to bring them through this. So one of the first ones they always did was a work capacity one. And, and I, I used to make it light enough. And I'd say, work capa- what, what's a work capacity for maybe a general population person or to stimulate work capacity is actually going to be active recovery for somebody who's very fit. So we used to do like this 30 on, 30 off circuit. And it was just like trap bar deadlift, push up, light goblet, reverse lunge, TRX row and a, pl- and a plank or something like that. And like I used to say to the guys, right, we're going to do this four rounds. So it was, it was five, so it was 20 minutes long. And I said, it's going to be really easy, like really easy for the first two, three rounds. Then by round three and four, you're not going to be knackered, but you'll have a nice light sweat. And I guarantee at the end, you'll all say this to me, you'll feel loose and you'll feel warm. And at the yep. end, they, the, and the next day they always come in, they always go, I was warm for hours after that. And I was going to say, because you did talk by exercise and you got all the blood flow around your body. So it's like, they're great recovery sessions. And then they were like, oh. Yep. And it's so funny because people always think like recovery, uh, you know, aerobic and they go running or cycling. I'm like, no, you can do yeah. this through like multiple. No, like, yeah, you can be creative. That's the great thing with these things. You can be so creative. Yeah. So you can do these like total body sessions. I mean, here, here's, here's what I think too. I think for your, your average personal trainer, right? A coach who works, works in the gym, trains clients. They have this idea that, you know, you have to push your clients as hard as you can or not to come back and see you. The reality is if you push somebody into their recovery debt, their lifestyle sucks, their nutrition sucks, their work capacity sucks, sooner or later their brain's going to fight back and their brain's going to be like, nah, I don't really want to go work out today. I'm going to cancel my session. And then next week, ah, I'm just tired. I'm, I'm going to cancel my session. And that's how you lose clients. Yeah. You may think like, hey, I'm going to push them as hard as I can. They're going to get the best workout and they're going to keep coming back for more. And eh, no, they're not. So I think part of improving retention and just getting better results with people is keep them training with you. Like somebody who trains you for 12 weeks, you can get a lot better results than somebody who quits after four weeks because you crush them every time they came in the gym. So I think people that, you know, train your average general population client for a living, they're going to see people actually sticking with them longer if half the time they come in, they feel better than when they left, right? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So we're, we're going to be coming up on time soon enough. Um, 
So we've really attacked Morpheus there in recovery, and I'll put everything in the show notes around Morpheus. And obviously, when when the when the course on Morpheus gets released, we'll we'll definitely put that out for you too. Just um, for the viewers and the listeners, why Morpheus? I know you told me this, but why the name Morpheus? You know, I was just kind of driving one day, and it was one of those things. I was like, I was I was thinking of names, and we were going through different uh, different possibilities. I was like Morpheus. I was like, yeah, that sounds about right. And my girlfriend just kind of laughed at me. Oh, yeah, that, that's funny. I was like, no, I think that's going to be it. And I don't know. It just, it just kind of popped in my head. And the more I thought about it, I'm like, I like that name. And I wanted, I wanted it to feel more like, more personal, I, you know, more like uh, like Siri or Cortana or Alexa or, you know, all the uh, Watson, IBM's Watson, all those AI, all those type of uh, technologies have names they, because they're, they are, they're trying to help you do something, right? They're, they're trying to coach you or give you information or order, order ship for you on Amazon or whatever they're trying to do. So I just like the name Morpheus. I thought it was cool. Um, it, it has more of a personality and we, we tried to, um, you know, just kind of position it as that as, as how people see it as a coach, not just an app and Morpheus and the matrix and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, just one of those things I like the name and it sounded cool. So there's no, there's no super amazing backstory. I just thought it sounded cool. <laughs> so, I, I could do a, I could do like a whole series of podcasts with you on conditioning alone and obviously HRV as well, but just a, a, I'm gonna give an early just like a, maybe an overall uh, question that we can get the most amount of information out of you in probably the least amount of time in terms of conditioning and so just with with Ultimate MMA since so you said 2008 2009 is when you wrote yep. this bad boy since that time is there anything you would change in the assessments and methods that have been in this book? I think that would probably be the best question since you wrote that. Is there anything you go back and say, I'd probably change that in the assessments or I would change that if I was training power capacity of one of the energy systems? You know, I, I think the, you know, I've, I've refined some methods here and there. You know, I've definitely made little tweaks to them, little changes here and there in terms of the methods. There's, there's nothing that I'm like, oh, that doesn't work or that is shit. There's no like major methods like, nah, I, I don't do that. I would say what I what I focus on a lot more now is, is teaching people how to actually control energy systems more than just develop them. So in the book, I really focus on okay, here's how you develop the aerobic, here's how you develop different parts of the anaerobic, or here's how you develop power, risk capacity. But I think what I didn't quite grasp back then, and what I see a lot more now, is you can have all the aerobic capacity or all the anaerobic capacity. You can have all the energy systems developed in the world, but you still aren't necessarily going to perform if you don't know how to put that together in fight or in a game because you ultimately have to learn how to control that energy you have to learn when to go as hard as you can you have to learn when to push back you have to learn how to recover quickly you have to learn how to manage that whole process so uh, I think I focus a lot what this is basically how I describe it now fitness is energy system development right fitness is vo2 max fitness is vertical jump fitness is how you how much weight you can lift but conditioning is how can you actually use your fitness effectively within your sport or within your event and that comes down to the mental side of things of knowing what your limits are knowing how hard you can dip in the anaerobic side before you have to pull back knowing when to push yourself at the end of the race versus the beginning all those sorts of things are what i would consider conditioning and it's putting together the pieces in a way that's going to improve your or leads the best performance possible so i didn't really you know back then i was fo so focused on the fitness side and developing energy systems I didn't really quite understand how important training people to get the most out of their energy systems actually was. And that's really kind of the, I talked about a little bit in terms of like the central governor and the central uh, components, but I didn't really get into like, how do you actually coach that? How do you actually teach somebody 
when to push and when to recover. How do you teach somebody how to control their energy? And so that's something I've added into the certification course. That's something I teach a lot more now. So it's not that I threw out the methods, it's I teach people how to do them differently. So, you know, for example, high resistance intervals, I'd say, okay, here's, here's, the, here's the method. We go against a high resistance, we do a short interval, and then we recover at a heart rate of 130 or 140, whatever. The way I would do it now is really focusing on how quickly can we recover as, as fast as possible. And that is part of the method, not just go up as high as you can in five seconds and drive, let, it, let it come back down, but actively try to drive your heart rate back down, actively try to recover in between. So I just think there's more, there's more nuances in how I would teach people to incorporate or do the methods now than when I wrote the book. Yeah, I, I remember when you did a podcast with Mike Robertson um, and you might have been on some other ones, but I remember at the time, and you'd come out with a really good article too, but at the time your headspace was very much on um, fatigue and the uh, central governor theory. Um, yeah. And I know in your conditioning course, that's kind of where you were at too. And you, you kind of alluded to it there that one of the major pieces that has come into your arsenal as a coach was teaching athletes to be able to execute their skill uh, as effectively as possible while developing their energy systems. Because you, you were saying to that, yeah. and maybe you touch on this, because I remember when I read the article and I heard, I'm not really sure you did discuss this, Mike, but it was, um, you know, you, you were saying like, you know, when like, so take the MMA athlete, for instance, and they're, they're doing their sparring or whatever. And, you know, they're going really tough and hard and then the technique breaks down. But what, what invariably does the coach do? Like, keep going, keep going, keep going. And you're like, yep. you're saying you're teaching the brain to, to perform in such a, uh, such a poor mechanical way with fatigue that that's going to become its default system where really we should be looking exactly. for efficiency all the time. True. Yeah, exactly. when, we're, when we're marrying the sport specific skill with the energy system development. So maybe just slightly touch on that because I remember that was a yep. big thing you were harping on about for a while. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think what I would say now is I've, I've looked a lot more at the holistic, right? We can't separate movement from conditioning. Our movement is inherently tied to our conditioning. Our conditioning is inherently tied to our movement. We can't separate the mental side of performance from movement or from conditioning. They're all inherently related. So that was, that's exactly what you're talking about. And, and we have this tendency as coaches, or at least a lot of coaches do nowadays or have for years, is you know, as they see someone fatigued, they're telling them, like I just talked about, like you talked about, go harder, go faster you know, five seconds, four seconds, you know, just trying to get them to go as hard and as fast as they possibly can. And they're not coaching any sort of technical application during those periods. So they're, again, it's, it's go as hard as you can, go as fast as you can. So again, the athlete gets in the ring or they get in the fourth quarter, they're exhausted. What's their default instinct? Now go as fast as I can, go as hard as I can. And their technique is completely thrown out the window. And what you ultimately end up doing is burning more calories, more energy because your technique becomes so inefficient. So what we should actually learn is, okay, I'm starting to get tired. I need to make sure that my technique stays as efficient as possible. I need to take a deep breath. I need to sit, reset myself. So I know I'm, I need to be much more aware of where my fatigue's at, where my skill level's at, what my technique looks like, and make sure I can actually recognize, okay, I'm getting tired. I can't drop my hands because I'm tired. I need to keep my hands up. I'm getting tired. I shouldn't just swing away at the guy. I should conserve my energy and give myself a chance to recover and then go swinging away at the guy. Because what's the thing you happen all the time in fights now? Guy gets tired, he swings away, he gets knocked out, right? He loses the damn fight because as he got tired, rather than conserving his energy and being efficient with his energy, he just goes for broke. And if he doesn't land one, he probably gets knocked out or gets submitted or whatever himself. So it's, I think we just inherently taught athletes the wrong way to respond to fatigue. We've taught them to respond with fatigue by going as hard and as fast as they can without any deference to actually doing it correctly. 
So I think technique and movement at the end of the day is what wins. Like skill always wins. You, you, you're never going to lose with better skill as long as your you know, fatigue doesn't cause your skill to fall apart. So I, I think the goal is always maintain your skill as long as you possibly can. That's the goal. The goal isn't go as fast as you can just to go as fast as you can, for God's sakes. But we've confused this idea of, you know, conditioning comes from fitness. No, conditioning comes from being able to use energy effectively and knowing where you're at and controlling things. So I think that, that control and that self-awareness and being able to recognize when my technique is falling apart, to recognize when I'm fatigued and be able as the athlete to self-correct is the most important thing you can teach an athlete. You, the athlete has to learn what to do when they're tired. They have to learn how to react to fatigue, not just go mentally as hard as they can, but know what to actually do to maintain technique and to maintain their skill level and to have the right strategy. Yeah. Yeah. That's it's uh, I, I'm currently reading through James Smith's, Smith's book, uh, the governor dynamics of coaching. And, you know, and from speaking from James Fitzgerald and I, you know, that James Fitzgerald is massive with the energy systems and, and yeah. the particular means and methods that we use to develop those energy systems. But within James Smith's book too, you know, he's talking about, and you know, this from, from your reading of the Russian materials and Verkashansky and whatnot, and, and the other great authors selling off them. And, um, and all the other great authors that have come from the USSR. Uh, but, uh, you know, this idea of the biodynamics, bioenergetics and biomotor abilities and like basically how you can't, se you can't separate those three in terms of they're, yeah. they're integrated. And, you know, that ideally we want, you know, to have the highest transfer to, to our sports success. We want the, the bioenergetics to be, to, be, to be developed through the biodynamics of the sport and the biomotor yeah. abilities as well. So it's trying to integrate those three for the yeah, exactly. optimum of transfer so just wrapping up joel uh a few more little questions for you one thing i really do want you to address because this this lately not lately but it was on a form and and like it was driving me a bit crazy they were they were asking you know should i take joel jameson's conditioning courses i only train general population people and i wrote in saying of course like it's completely applicable and then some yep. people write and go no like read this book it's really like towards you know athletes and they were saying like you know like aerobic power like who would why would you ever do that with a general population person it's like he, he, but like they all never wrote that it's just like you have to do these he's just like they're a method you can potentially use with an individual in a particular yeah. context situation so they were just like taking the usual taking things out of context but i was like yeah. his his course is a hundred percent uh is 100 percent for general population as well as for athletes so maybe yeah. just like can you maybe just say like like you know your conditioning course like the principles of it are applicable to everyone yeah i mean i i basically designed it from the standpoint i want to give people a set of principles right these are the guiding underlying things that dictate why you do what you do have a reason for what you do basic principles like hey you need to manage volume and intensity and rest and recovery. And how do we do that? Well, we do that through structuring their overall program correctly. From there, we put methods on top of, okay, here's how we improve this. Here's how we improve that. But exactly how you use those methods depends on the person. It can be used for anybody. And what I think, what pisses me off, to be honest with you, is these people who get on forums or get on whatever and say, you don't need to do any cardio. You just need a bunch of strength training. Like that's all, that's all you need for health and wellness. It's bullshit, okay? All the research on the face of the earth shows you that aerobic fitness is necessary for longevity. It's necessary for just overall health and maintaining your brain function and avoiding dementia and all these sorts of things later in life. It's meant, it's important for a huge number of health concerns, right? Your average general population client, 
doesn't want to be on Schwarzenegger. They want to be healthier. They want to live longer. They want to feel good. They want to feel good obviously. And aerobic fitness is such an important part of that. It's insane. You can't take that out the window and just do a bunch of strength exercises. You're doing somebody a disservice. So energy systems and parasympathetic nervous system and aerobic function, all these things. I don't care who you are. I don't care if you're an MMA fighter. I don't care if you're a stay-at-home mom. I don't care if you're some executive. I don't care who the hell you are. All these things apply because it's all based on how our bodies were designed to function. And the course I put together is designed to teach you, again, those basic principles, how the body works, how energy systems work, how we can teach basic skills. So, for example, you know, we just talked about in our aerobic methods or in some of the methods, we want to teach people how to drop their heart rate as quickly as possible. That's a skill. That skill can also be applied to, hey, I'm sitting there at work. I'm stressed out by my boss. I can learn how to bring my heart rate back down to normal. I can learn how to cope with stress better. I can learn how to fight that instinct to get all pissed off and bring myself back down, let my heart rate recover and avoid that sympathetic response that ultimately is going to kill me if I do it all the time. So, yeah, I think I don't care who you're trying to work with. I mean, you can, you can work with just about anybody if you understand the basic principles, you understand what you're trying to achieve, and then you have the methods to go out and actually use it. So, shit, I just designed uh, – we, we took basically the, the stuff that's in the certification course a bit more and I developed this whole certification course for lifetime fitnesses for 1,000 personal trainers. They do 100 plus million dollars in revenue in personal training. They probably do more money in personal training than any gym in the world. And they brought me in to help develop their personal training curriculum for their general population clients. And they're using it with great success. So you know, it's definitely not just for athletes, not performance, it's really for, for anybody. You want to have a reason of why you're doing what you're doing. You want to have methods. You don't want to just have a bunch of exercises. You want to actually have principles and methods that you can apply. And that's really what the course is for. The whole universe is about energy. Every human yes. being is all about energy production. So if 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 uh, if something is talking about energy systems development, it's applicable to everyone because at yeah. a fundamental level, it's all about well, energy. Everything is about energy. Everything. I mean, basically, we are designed to create energy from the second we're alive until the second we're dead, and we're designed to go out and, and procreate. And that's what biology basically is. Biology is metabolism and reproduction. Metabolism, reproduction. That's ninety nine percent of what we're designed to do, literally. And, and alcohol, because in Ireland, it's, it's procreation and alcohol as well. That's part of how you procreate, right? Especially over there. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. I'm pretty sure that's how I was made as well. You know, I keep, I, I, I've been told many times I was a drunken mistake by my parents. So uh, I'm just happy to be here, people. Uh, the, the last sort of uh, training-related question, then I just have some quick fire ones for you, is, sure. okay, and, and, and I, this is the, the form for you to address this. What is the biggest criticism you're constantly hearing with HRV and like say like the biggest misconception and it drives you nuts about HRV that you can, that you're like, listen, this is what it is. Like, well, what is the biggest sort of thing you're, you're like misconception you're hearing? You can address that. Well, here. Okay. There's two things. Number one, there's a, there's this assumption that high HRV is always good and low HRV is always bad. Both of them are just signaling different things happening within the body. Okay. So immediately following stress from HRV goes down after a little while, recover major V comes back up, and then eventually kind of come back to baseline on like a normal level. So this idea that like one is always bad and one is always good—it's just a gross oversimplification. Okay, there's there's there should be a normal process that should occur, and at any given time you can be high, you can be low relative to your baseline. They just signal different things. Now your average level of HRV, yes, higher is better than lower in general for most people, but there's still limits, right? Like I don't need to take a power lifter and give them the same HRV as a marathon runner. They, there are different ranges for different people. So I see my biggest thing is just they oversimplify it. 
right? It's just, they, they don't want to talk about the nuances. It's just like, oh, up is good, down's bad. No, it's not always that simple like we talked about. I um, mean, the second thing I already mentioned as well, where it's this idea that, oh, my HRV is low, but I felt good in the gym, so HRV is not accurate. Okay, that's the other thing that we hear, you know, I hear all the time. It's, it's not that simple. People get that people want a simple answer and a simple solution, but the human body is not simple. Like, it's, it, there's a lot of complex things that we don't understand yet. There's lots of variables that go into HRV. And that, that same thing, I did another one there. Hey, I trained really hard, but my HRV doesn't go down or my HRV didn't change. Well, no shit, because your body's used to it because you do it every single day, right? HRV show you how your body is responding and largely, the more it's unused to something, the more you use something is new or unfamiliar, the bigger HRV change is gonna be because it's a bigger stress. You do the same damn workout every day for six months, even though it might be hard, your body is used to that. It's not going to have this huge response. So again, people just want to assume like X always equals Y and there's one always equals one plus one always equals two. It's just not that simple. Mm. All right. Just a, a few quick fire ones for you. Um, well, like the questions will be quick fire, but as Mike Robson says, your answers can be as long or short as you want. Uh, your biggest, your, your, your biggest influences on you personally and professionally. Um, you know, that's a good one. Um, I would say, the interesting thing professionally, probably the guy that got me started down this whole thing, and I have never met him in person, is Robert Sapolsky. Just his biological model of stress and understanding kind of how we're hardwired really kind of got me going down that model of this biological adaptation and kind of how the whole the whole thing's put together. Um, you know, personally, uh, I would say, you know, just family members, my uncle, uh, cousins, just people I've grown up with. Uh, I did do a lot of flying. I'm a pilot, so I have a lot of people in the, in the pilot community that I have a, a lot of respect for and a lot of fun with. So, you know, kind of the usual friend and family and a few people close to me. But I would say from a, like I said, I, was, I would say Robert Sapolsky kind of got me going down that path of the biological model. Bill Gillespie was a huge influence starting out my career and a huge help. And, and he really kind of taught me the biggest thing that I've always stuck with me is, you know, I was 19 or 20 years old and I walked in the weight room at the University of Washington or wherever I was and wanted to work with him and he had been in this field for 20 years and he was open to my ideas he, he told me to go research this stuff the Russians were doing and bring it back to him you know even though I, I knew nothing relative to him I'd never been in the field he was this head guy at the University of Washington and had Rose Bowl rings and championships he was willing to listen to my ideas right he was willing to be open-minded he was willing to learn new things and that's always stuck with me you never know everything there's always somebody who can contribute something to your knowledge that you may not have so i've always tried to keep that in mind like i don't know everything nobody knows everything that's why we're all sitting here sharing information and trying to figure all this shit out so i think you know just from that standpoint if i started my career off having that mindset i think that's been a hugely influence as well and the, the reason, sorry, the reason I was looking up there when your answer was my, my, my Sapolsky book, The White Zebra's Uncle Ulcer, is up there. Did you get Behave? Have you read Behave? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. His, uh, and I know you, you love his free course online on YouTube. Oh, yeah, free course. I mean, it's, go, yeah. it's golden. I mean, how much money would people pay for that course? They go to Stanford, they pay, I don't know, how many thousand dollars to take his course at Stanford. You can watch it online for free, for God's sake. That unreal. guy's a genius. He, he's an absolute genius. Yeah, is I'm actually I'm gonna try and get him on on the podcast. If you could pull it off, I would, I'll, hey, I need to get him the copter cast. That's what I need to do. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> we can, we can tell tell people about that towards the end. But uh, see, so influences. What what's been the biggest lessons you've learned so far in your life and career? What would be the top one, two, or three? I would say the top. Okay, here's my here's my personal top one. Okay, this is something I've seen over and over again. There's all, and this sounds totally Tony Robbins bullshit cliche. But I swear to God, I've seen this. 
there's the people, the thing to me that I've seen separate the people that are successful from people that are less successful is the people are successful. They, they hit a point where they don't know something or they're not good at something. The people unsuccessful say, ah, fuck it. I can't do that. It's too hard. I don't want to learn that. I'm just going to keep doing what I do. I'm going to keep doing what I know. The people that are successful, they say, shit, I don't know that. I need to learn that. And I'm going to pour everything I have into understanding that. And I think just that mentality difference between, hey, I don't know something, I'm scared of it, I don't want to do it, versus, hey, I don't know something, I better learn that if I'm going to be successful, I'm going to go full bore into it. I think that choice or that mindset difference is what I've seen separate people that are really successful in life versus people who are just kind of like your average person who just goes down the road and you know, lives his life and never really achieved what he was capable of. Because sooner or later, you're, you're going to have to learn something new. You're going to have to face something you've never done before. You're going to have to be able to make that decision of, hey, I don't know how to do this. I'm going to get really good at it versus I don't know this. I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing. And I think that was kind of the, the, really, that was the turning point in my career, right? Like I knew strength. I didn't know shit about conditioning, but all of a sudden I had to train these fighters. And I realized really quickly that like what I knew wasn't really going to help them. So I either could make a decision like, hey, I'm just not going to work with those guys. I'm going to send them to somebody else. Or I can go learn how to be a conditioning coach because that's what they need. And that's kind of how I've always approached things. If I suck at something, I hate sucking at something. And I'm going to go full bore into it until I get good at it or at least I get decent at it. And I think that's been part of what's helped me have a successful career in fitness. I've seen the same thing over and over again. So if you suck at something, get better at it. Focus on it. Learn it. Go at it. Don't run away from it. That's me. The biggest thing I would say is, is, is one of the biggest things I've ever learned. Yeah, man, it, it, it really comes back to perceptions because it's kind of like Brian Holiday's book, Obstacle is the Way. You know, you, you can see an obstacle as a problem that's blocking you or you can see it as an opportunity for you to grow. So, it, you know, it really just comes down to, to, to perceptions. And it, again, going back to your love for Sapolsky and human behavior, I'm the same. Like when you start going in the rabbit hole of understanding human behavior and why people are the way they are, it, it's like it's – it's just so interesting because then you start going like, why, why am I the way I am? And then you, you try, you know, you know coming to the self-awareness of who you are. And then oh, yeah. like, that gives you such, uh, I'm, like, and I, I always got to credit Jock Fresco, Joseph Shilton Pierce and Bruce Lipton as kind of the three gentlemen who introduced me into like, first of all, like Bruce Lipton introduced me to epigenetics and how the environment is like, like so uh, crucial in determining, determining oh, yeah. an organism's expression, you know? And well, even, re- I mean, there's a whole course I took on like genetics of behavior and basically what you find out is like the parental environment doesn't mean nearly as much as you think it does like yeah. people's environment and their genetics they're, they're intangible but like you think that your parents are like the key eh, it's it's the, the damn genetics are so clutch and the environment just kind of helps express yeah. the genetics that you have so all that stuff is super interesting yeah yeah and it, but but those particularly those three gentlemen like what they made me appreciate really at, at a fundamental level was that everyone and everything is with there for a reason and then when you come to that awareness that everyone and everything is with there for a reason and also yourself you know yeah. your 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 levels of compassion and empathy and uh, understanding they, they all elevate you know and so it kind of brings you to a place of instead of like you know condemn, condemning and judging you always it brings you to a place of being able to step back and always ask the question why and try to understand and show some discernment. Like, so uh, yeah. that, that was a huge part for me. Now it's currently in my growth as a person. 
So Joel, your, your top resource, um, and I always say this to everyone, the resource can be anything. It can be a book, a person, a podcast, a video, a website. It doesn't have to be with anything we covered today. It could be whatever. You could, and it doesn't have to be one thing. You might say, here's a training resource, here's nutrition, here's life, here's spirituality, or could be just one global one. Yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, we just talked about it. I would say for your average trainer coach who is listening to this interest, so, I mean, go back to what I just said, Sapolsky's YouTube course on human behavior biology is something that everybody should go through. I mean, just the basic fundamental building blocks of why we are the way we are, why we do the things that we do, what stress is and how everybody reacts to it. I think if you, if you haven't gone through that course, you're lacking some basics that explain so many things that you see and so many things that are right in front of you. You have to start by going through that course um, from a business perspective, you know, I think just the, the shit, there's, there's so many business books out there. Right? I think that the blue ocean, uh, by what's his face, I can't think of his name. I think to me, that's one thing I've been looking at lately as a lot is business coaching and in fitness to me, it's such a crowded space, right? It's, there's so much competition. If you let there be competition, if you position yourself as a coach or a trainer, that's doing the same things as 99% of the other coaches and trainers out there, 99%, then there's massive competition. And I think what's made me, uh, what's helped me be successful and guys like James and yourself is we've always taken a bit different approach than the mainstream, right? Like we've had our own road to get where we go, but we're, or where we're at, but we all have our own specialties, our own niches, our own groups we work with. We don't compete with every other trainer or coach in the face of the earth. We're approaching a different group of people or we're having a different message or we're talking to a different audience. So you know, I think from a business perspective, it's learning how to have that message that resonates with a certain group of people and how to be different from everybody else because it's, there's so many people in fitness, there's so many coaches and trainers and gyms. If you want to be successful, you have to find a way to make yours different than the rest. So I, I forget the name of the, uh, the guy who wrote the Blue Ocean Strategy and talked about that, the, whole, uh, the whole concept behind that. But I'd say from a business perspective, you're not going to be successful in fitness unless you can learn how to be a bit different than everybody else, unless you can learn how to have a message that's different and resonates than everybody else. So, um, yeah, I'll start there. Spiritual, I don't know. Don't even ask me that one. Uh, car backloading. Uh, I'm a job. There you go. There you go. Uh, but uh, I actually never heard of that book, Blue Ocean Strategy, but uh, that'll be in the show notes. Yeah, and, and, I, I got to look it up. I can't think of his name. Yeah. It's, basically, it's just this idea of, like, rethinking, like, how to position or rethinking the, mm. the differences and how you're – Pushing, positioning and what you're saying and just it's basically about be different don't go after everybody else what everybody else is doing think of a different way of approaching it be different than everybody else yeah well i'll, I'll find that and i'll link in the show notes as well as yeah. uh, sapolsky and everything else your stuff of course which i'll get you plugged towards the end uh, last two so joel you have 365 days left on planet earth for whatever reason maybe because we just have to leave because it's about to explode and we have to get to my yeah, sure but you have one year left on planet Earth. Uh, how would you spend that year? I would fly all over the goddamn world. Helicopter, airplane, gyrocopter, glider. You, you, I don't do care. That. you do that anyway. I know that, but I want to see the rest of the world. I want to go see. I've, I've flown in probably, I don't know, 20, 15, 20 countries. Hmm. But think how many more countries I haven't flown in. So I'm, I'm planning a trip to go fly a helicopter to New Zealand in uh, like October, November. Like the, the things, here's what it comes down to. Until you've been up there and seen the things that I see on a daily basis, you just have no concept of what, what the world really looks like, what the world really is. So Once just, you're up there and you see these things and you have the experience you can have up there, 
like it's addicting. You, you want to go see the rest of it because there's so much more to see. So if I've only got one year left. Like I want to see all there is to see before I'm gone. Cause after that, what's the point? So just for the viewers and listeners, uh, Joel regularly, like almost daily would it be flies a helicopter in the plane. Yeah. Uh, but how much, how much does flying fuck up your HRV? Quite a bit actually. Well, actually it depends on how it depends on what I'm doing. If I'm going out and doing a bunch of maneuvers that are, that are very energy mentally demanding, it, you know, it definitely does. If I'm going out to just fly, it, it, it's hugely relaxing for me. Mm. It's hugely relaxing. It's stimulated with recovery tremendously. But if I'm like today, I was doing what I called auto rotations, like uh, simulated engine failures and some advanced auto, ro- auto rotations and different stuff. Mentally challenging, very mentally demanding. Like that actually is very fatiguing. But just kind of flying around, uh, generally speaking, is very relaxing for me. Now, if you hate to fly, then it's going to have the opposite effect. But what's the? I don't hate to fly, but I, I hate crashing. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, me too. I train uh, I was going to uh, ask what's the like the the like the the top most cla- like the what's like the, the the most advanced plane you've you've ever you've ever piloted um have you ever gone into like any of those like super sonic like those really fast ones yeah. I mean I've been in like I've been in Learjets I've been that kind of stuff I'm actually so my cousin flies a jet called a Challenger 604 which is about a I don't know, 20, 30 million dollar jet. So I'm, I'm doing some training right now to finish off some stuff to start flying that and some trips with them. Um, so I've, I've flown a lot of jets and stuff like that. And a lot, I've flown a decent amount of, decent amount of jets and, and some simulators and that kind of stuff. So, you know, the funny thing is the more advanced they are, the more automated they are. You're just kind of pushing buttons, you're monitoring systems and you're just going through checklists. It's mm. not as, it's not as pure flying, I would say as, as a helicopter or some of the, you know, the smaller planes where you're, you're literally flying the damn thing. And a lot of the plane, the bigger planes of the automation, they're literally pushing buttons and they're flying themselves. So you know, there's something to be said for operating those those planes. But I like the the, the smaller, more you know, more hands-on flying myself. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Very last question. Um, I'm back in Seattle and we're going to feast buffet again. Oh man, uh, hey, just it's not buffet. It's not buffet. 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 Whatever. Whatever. Buffet. Uh. Feast buffet, but uh, just for again the viewers and listeners, I was over in Seattle last year and we had dinner there. I swear to God, that was the nice. It was like sushi, this big sushi restaurant. It was the oh, yeah. nicest food I ever had. There was crack cocaine in some of that food, man. It was so good, <laughs> particularly that seaweed salad. I must add about a, a, a ton of it. It was unbelievable. Oh, yeah. That's a anyway, we're we're back in town and, and we're going to feast buffet. Uh, and I say to you, Joel, you can bring five people to this dinner, dead or alive. Who, oh, who, who would you bring to this dinner and why? Well, oh my God. Um, I hate to sound like a, like a uh, Sapolsky fanboy, but I bring Sapolsky for sure. Hmm. I would bring uh, probably my uncle who I'm very close with. I would bring... God, there's, there's not that many people I find fascinating enough. I've only got three more choices there. Bring my girlfriend. They can be dead now. They can be dead too. Dead or alive. Dead or alive. You can bring someone back from the dead. Um, God, I don't know, honestly. Like, there's not that many people that I would think of that are dead that I'd be super excited to sit down and talk with. Um, you know, maybe Charles Lindbergh, you know, someone on the pilot side of things who was kind of a pioneer in, in aviation. That, he'd actually be a really interesting one to talk to. Um, I'm not, I know some people are going to pop in my head later, but uh, who else would I bring? How about you? Who would you bring? Let me, let me think for a second. Give me your answers. <laughs> you can't do that. Well, I just did. 
so again, and I, I also like, because I often ask this question and people are like, oh, I don't know. And I'm, like, I'm like, just whatever. Like, it doesn't, like, people are too afraid that they leave something out. It's like, just what's in your head right now in the moment. So yeah. for me, uh, what's in my head at the moment, I would bring, um, now, whether he was real or not real or made up, but I think Jesus would be interesting. I'm not a religious man, <laughs> but I, I think he'd be interesting, you know. Plus, he, uh, looks, okay. he looks Fair like enough. a he looks That'd like a, he looks like a BG. I'd probably bring Lincoln, Joseph Shilton Pierce, um, Lincoln, Joseph Shilton Pierce, probably Martin Luther King, and um, who else have I had there? Joseph Shilton Pierce. Oh, Jock Fresco. They'd probably be my five. Um, other other potential people in there. Paul Check, I think, would be interesting. Uh, JFK, John F. Kennedy, um, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. They'd be other people that might be there as well. But the first five I get there is probably who I'd invite. Yeah, JFK would be interesting. I mean, like Neil Neil Armstrong from like that would be interesting. Mm. You know, I think people people that did. Yeah. People that were the first, right? Like people that went into the unknown to me are more fascinating than people that kind of just were really good at one thing. Like I, I like the people that were true pioneers. Like what the hell is Davy Crockett or Daniel Boone? Like, what the hell are those guys like, right? I mean, people that actually live in this weird, crazy-ass time where, you know, you were traveling across the country by horse and carriage, you could be shot at by Indians. Like, they've got to have some interesting stories, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Listen, Joel, that's absolutely fantastic. This is actually one of my favorite interviews. It flew by, so did, and just, again, info is always... Uh, info was just amazing but uh listen uh all jokes aside seriously uh you've been a massive influence on me in my, in my career massive influence on me throughout my growth as a person and you know i've met met with you three times in person and you're nothing but an absolute gent an absolute uh, legend as we say here in- yeah, yeah le- i've been getting that all the time now you uk people i'm getting these emails like legend mate i'm like what the legend what the hell's legend yeah just means your sound you know yeah, uh, is that a new one that, is that news? That's what no, you think? no, Chase. Well, not not oh. here anyway. We we say legend all the time. Yeah, he's a legend. Yeah, he's sound. He's a legend. But oh, uh, yeah, legend. Yeah. So uh, you're, listen, you're, you're a legendary tinker, <laughs> <laughs> and you're a fucking bollocks. But anyway, <laughs> uh, and that's staying in the and that's staying in this interview. But uh, come here, before I go, um, where can people find out more information about yourself and everything you got going on? Yeah, eightweeksout.com is really kind of where my whole whole home is. Uh, you. You can follow me on Facebook. I just started Instagram, so I'm going to be posting some crazy pictures of flying shit and training people and traveling all over the place on Instagram. So you can find Coach Joel Jameson on my Instagram. I have like one thing up there now, but I got more stuff coming. Coach um, Joel Jameson, you don't even coach anymore. What are you talking about? Well, what, what am I put? Joel Jameson, pilot? No, Coach Joel Jameson. <laughs> if you, uh, aspiring astronaut. You definitely yes. have space. You would. Oh, uh, so hey. This is my goal. My goal is make enough money so when I die, they can put my body in a MIG and shoot it into space. So I'm just floating in space in a MIG. Like I don't want to cremate it in space. I want my body in a MIG, just kind of floating through space. That'd be class. Yeah. I think your body. I think your body be preserved. I think yeah. you just be kind of floating through space in a MIG. That'd be gas. That'd be gas. Yeah. yeah uh yeah that'd be savage and we'll, we'll put like all your all your resources and books in there like so if any like extra extra will find it exactly. they're just they'll find those and they'll like hmm. <laughs> yeah well you see like the, the tesla the, the uh elon actually elon musk i think would be an interesting person yeah james is elon, like elon, elon musk yeah yeah elon musk would be a good one uh but you saw they shot that tesla in space like a little dummy like i feel like that's the precursor to me being a mig 
That's gas. All right, Joel, thanks a million. So viewers and listeners, thanks so much for uh, listening to this or for viewing this. Make sure you subscribe to the OPEX uh, podcast uh, subscribe to the youtube channel subscribe to us on whatever podcast app you listen to but from myself robbie burke and from joel jason thanks so much peace